1875, a British poet named William Ernest Henley published a short poem that expressed one way to cope with life circumstances. The poem, which maybe you've heard of, is called Invictus, and it ended with these famous lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Now, it's likely that you've heard those lines somewhere before, even if you didn't know the original author. In popular culture, the last two lines usually represent some kind of heroic and self-sufficient stand against evil and injustice without submitting to God. In fact, for over 150 years, Henley's poem has inspired many people. Right back in the 1980s, the poem encouraged former South African President Nelson Mandela through the dark days of his imprisonment. Years later, Clint Eastwood used it in the title of his popular film about the South African rugby team. Now, sadly, on the flip side, it also has been a great influence on people like the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, who was responsible for the deaths of 168 men, women, and children, and the injuries of over 800 more. He scribbled out the words, the word Invictus, and handed it to authorities as his last words before his execution. Now, friends, here's my question this morning. How many of us have read the line of that poem or heard the line of that poem and thought, that's a great line? I mean, after all, isn't that the American dream, to be a self-made person? I mean, in one sense, it feels good to be the master of my fate. And I wonder how many of us are living out in what I'll call an Invictus lifestyle. Now, I don't mean we're openly spitting in the face of God, but we are, I think, subtly doing that by the choices that we make every day. And those choices, as we'll talk about today, lead to spiritual collapse. The reality, or I should say that reality, was very much the case in the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were facing a crisis from the outside with the Assyrian Empire coming in to attack them. They were also facing a crisis on the inside where king after king after king was vying for power, and the question was, who would govern them? Perhaps that's something we can relate to this week in the midst of an election aftermath. Over the last few months, we've seen the trials and the triumphs of Israel's kings. If you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 11, the, northern king, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Now, after this message today, only the southern kingdom of Judah will, be, will remain. Today, we're going to look at the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel, a guy named Hosea. Look at how he's introduced in 2 Kings chapter 17. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the king of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned for nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, we'll delve more into Hosea's reign in just a moment, but for now, I want us to focus on the second part of that verse. What does it say? Right, it says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, yes, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. In other words, he wasn't as bad as previous kings, like Ahab, who we've heard about, but he still did evil in God's sight. He was slightly better, but not good enough. 
And I think this verse is what creates a tension for many of us because it points to what I'm going to call our subtle rebellion. Now, I also want to mention that in this message, I'm going to make a lot of personal applications, but many points can also be attributed to a national level, that there's an unhealthy pride that can arise in nations. Because you see, many nations and many of us listening today are living out that Invictus message, even if we don't know it. We think about people that rebel against God are really, really bad people, right? Like Timothy McVeigh or Hitler or Harvey Weinstein or fill in whatever name you want to there. And what we don't stop to realize is that every one of us is a rebel. We are just living out a more subtle rebellion. Now, what does that look like? Well... It looks like us trusting ourselves more than God. We don't pray when things get difficult. We pride ourselves in our ability to figure out problems. Why? Because it feels good to trust yourself and your accomplishments. It feels good when people tell us that we're strong or we're smart or we're clever. Now, these aren't the marks of open rebellion, but rather a more subtle rebellion against God. And friends, what I want us to see today is that this mindset, the mindset where we rule our own lives and don't trust God, will lead to spiritual collapse. As we'll see, this is exactly what happened with Hosea. He tried to solve his own problems and didn't fully trust God, and that's why he's the last king of Israel. He thought, I'm not as bad as those other kings that were before me, and just like Hosea and his people... If we think that way, we're on the road to spiritual collapse, and yet we don't even realize it. So, the question is, how do we avoid spiritual collapse? Well, in 2 Kings 17, we see three lessons on how to avoid spiritual collapse. First, we have to see that spiritual collapse doesn't happen overnight. Second, in the midst of that, we'll see the character of spiritual collapse. And then finally, and more hopefully, we'll see the road to revival. We'll see the road to revival. And that road happens, and we find that road when we humbly submit to our true master. So to that end, let's pray and then dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I thank you for your people that are here today, that are watching online, Lord. I thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who walks on the water, the God who is above the chaos in this world, Lord. And many of us are coming here today feeling chaotic, we're feeling like we're, we're the people of Israel who are, who, are, who are just seeing chaos happen all around them, Lord. And we pray today that you would help us to know that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are the God who hears us. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first, spiritual collapse doesn't happen overnight. And truthfully, there's many things that don't happen overnight, Right? And yet, every time things like that happen, we find ourselves asking the question, how did we get here? Right? How how did this happen? How did I get to this this point? Well, let's let's take debt for an example, right? Very few people accrue a lot of debt overnight. And if you do, wow, you you got a spiritual gift, I guess. Typically, it's the culmination of many choices over many years. Or, Or think about weight gain, Right? It's very hard to gain 30 pounds overnight. It usually happens over many months and years, and it's based on our eating and exercise choices. 
And the same is true for our spiritual lives. People don't randomly walk away from the faith one day. It is the culmination of many thoughts, choices, and experiences over many years. In 2 Kings 17, we're going to see that the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel is a very sad story. And I should also note, nations don't collapse overnight. Many choices are made over many years, going all the way back, in Israel's case, to the king Jeroboam, the first king, where he chose to worship false gods and not the true God, and, his prof- and the prophecy was spoken over him, right, all the way back in 1 Kings 14, which Pastor Dave preached about. The prophecy was this, and he, Yahweh, will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. In other words, many years ago, Israel was warned about their sin, and they did not turn back to God. Now, last week, Pastor Dave did a great job of overviewing 2 Kings chapter 9 to chapter 12, and then we get to chapter 13, and we see the death of the prophet Elisha, who we've been talking about. He was the one who, in many ways, helped protect the northern kingdom of Israel, and now he's dead and gone. 2 Kings chapter 14 to 17 is where we see the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's just more of the same, right? 2 Kings 14 and 15, we see Israelite king after Israelite king rising to power, usually because they found a way to kill their predecessor. Infighting was rampant in the nation, faction against faction again. Can we relate? Now, there's one major theme that keeps coming up in the editorial notes about each of these kings, and it's captured in the life of a king named Zechariah. In 2 Kings 15, it says this about Zechariah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And and i got to tell you, this is not an isolated verse. It says this almost about every king of Israel. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. In other words, they continued to be the master of their fate, the captain of their souls. They didn't submit to the true captain. The legacy of Israel's kings was one of total rejection of God. Then in chapter 17, we come to the last king of Israel, Hosea. And again, we read that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings who came before him. His was not a total rejection of God, but a subtle rejection. Some progress had been made, yes, but it wasn't enough. Too little, too late. Israel was on the brink of collapse. And so you might ask the question, well, how was Hosea different? Look at verse 3. It says this, again, Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. All right, so now we need to learn a little bit of history here, okay, so we know the context. First, you need to know that the Assyrians were the dominant power of the time. They were constantly attacking surrounding nations, and they were feared, friends, They engaged in brutal warfare that relied on massive armies and the world's first great siege machines kind of look like this. They'd surround a city. They'd bring in these battering rams and try to get into the city. Many times they would surround cities for years. More than that, they they engaged in a psychological terror and and left uh, left messages for their enemies. 
And these messages were in the form of corpses impaled by stakes, severed heads stacked in heaps, bodies skinned alive of their enemies to instill fear. See, the Assyrians were powerful and they were evil. King Shalmaneser was one of the worst. So secondly, you can see why Hosea wanted to cut a deal with him, right? In fact, Israel had to pay him tribute. And that started back with King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16. Now, that word you read, to be a vassal, essentially meant that the Assyrians owned him. And because they owned him, a tax was expected to be paid in order for the Assyrians to protect their vassal state. But Hosea comes up with an alternative idea in verse 4. It says this, But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So here the plot thickens. What's going on? What's Hosea doing here? Well, I think at a, at a much higher level, he's living out an invictus life. I mean, he was in serious trouble here, right? He was a slave to the Assyrians. And you may ask, well, did he pray and ask God for help? Nope. He came up with his own plan. He formed an alliance with Egypt, thinking they could protect him, and he stopped paying all his taxes to the king of Assyria. He, he looked around, he considered the political and the economic alternatives, and he asked Egypt for help, which is just a bit ironic, isn't it? Because can you think of another nation in the history of Israel that had enslaved them? Egypt. Hosea thought he could save Israel with his brilliant scheme. Now, I just have to ask, has this ever happened to you before? And I don't mean that you were literally, literally owned by an enemy and you were paying tribute to them, although maybe you were, I don't know, but probably not. The question is, have you ever been in trouble and your first impulse is to come up with a solution on your own. Rather than praying and trusting in God to see you through, you use your relational connections to help you. Or maybe you're in financial trouble and you have somebody bail you out. Or maybe you had a health problem and you go to see as many specialists as you possibly can. Or maybe you get a poor grade on a test and you start to barter and try to get a, cut a deal with your teacher. This is what Hosea did. He schemed, he negotiated, rather than praying. And I think there's a little bit of Hosea in all of us. Charles Blanchard, who served as the second president of Wheaton College, uh, confessed one time to the sin of prayerlessness when his wife was gravely ill. While he believed in the potential efficacy of the medicine she was going to receive, he still believed more in the power of God. He recognized the lack of dependence affected all areas of his life, and this is what he wrote at the time of her sickness. He said, after going about in my own efforts, I have been awakened to the fact that I have not prayed. That is, that I have not committed that particular thing to God. Sometimes it's been the need of money, sometimes the need of victory over temptation, sometimes the salvation of other other persons, or the growth of grace of Christian friends, and I have found that I have not received simply because I have not asked. 
And so, friends, I'll ask again, are we like Hosea? Do we try to solve problems under our own power? Or are we seeking the power of God in prayer? I know I've done that, and I need to repent of that. Never stop praying. In fact, I was so proud to hear that our youth group had committed this entire year to focusing on personal prayer. And I was moved that Johnny mentioned the other day that on Wednesday night, our teens are committed to like 25 minutes of of their meeting to personal prayer. And I just said, what an example for all of us. Because spiritual collapse does not happen overnight, but it most assuredly begins with a lack of prayer. When we try to do things in our own efforts, disaster often strikes. Look at the result of Hosea's efforts in verse 5. It says, Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, their machines came in and they besieged it. So as soon as the king of Assyria found out Hosea's plan, he wasn't pleased. He wanted his tax money. And first, what he does is he captures Hosea, throws him in jail, and then he brings the full force of his military against Israel and begins a siege of their capital, Samaria. It lasts three years. Now, remember how I described before how just powerful and menacing the Assyrians were? Just think about how Hosea's plan now has brought pain and destruction and terror upon Israel. This is devastating, devastating consequences. But that is what happens when we trust in ourselves. These are the last days of Israel, and we can only imagine the suffering they experienced. The last king of Israel, like the first king of Israel, failed to trust Yahweh God, and this is what happens to the nation. Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, and the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes, all places in the Assyrian Empire. Samaria is captured. Its people killed, tortured. More than that, the people of Israel are taken into exile, scattered all over the Assyrian Empire, never to return to their homeland. Never. They became known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. And this is something that should make us weep. It is so sad. The spiritual collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel led to a national collapse. They were never heard from again. In a few chapters, the kingdom of Judah will also be captured by the Babylonians, and they'll be taken into captivity. But to preserve David's line, God will bring them back to the land That's the story of the books of Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. But Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone, wiped out, never to return. And this is a reminder to us, church, never stop trusting the Lord. Spiritual collapse doesn't happen overnight, so don't think it can't happen to you or me. Always guard your heart and your mind. Don't trust yourself, trust the Lord. Because if you look at Israel's history you'll see that there was a character of spiritual collapse that got infused within them, and that's where we're going to turn next, to this character of spiritual collapse. 
Now, the first six verses of chapter 17 show us what happened at the fall of Israel. The next section of chapter 17 show us why, it's really a commentary on why it happened. The author writes about the spiritual character that became infused in Israel and led to this collapse. Now, I've known many people who, over the years, they've wa- who've walked away from the faith, or at least become apathetic towards Christianity, and it often, they often exhibit these traits, and that's why I call them the character that we find in the text. So the first trait of spiritual collapse is ingratitude. It's ingratitude. Now, have you ever met an ingrateful person? I'm sure right now some of you are picturing somebody. Hopefully it's not somebody who's sitting next to you. It's a natural point to bring up with Thanksgiving right around the corner. What is an ungrateful person like? Well, often they forget the gift that they were given. They act entitled, selfish, and bitter. The grateful person is humble and always willing to give. A grateful person is spiritually alive because they know. They know the grace of God. Israel was not grateful and had forgotten God's grace. Look at verse 7. It says this. And this, the collapse of Israel, occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, it says, and this occurred. What occurred? The fall of Israel. The fall of Israel occurred because why? The people of Israel sinned against God. How? Well, it's really interesting that the author appeals to Egypt here. Okay, because again, I find it incredibly ironic that Hosea asks Egypt for help with the Assyrians. It's the ultimate example. It's the ultimate example of how Israel forgot the deliverance they received from God. I mean, listen, this is the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. It's the story of God saving his people, God bringing them after they were enslaved in Egypt, saving them, bringing them out after they were enslaved for hundreds of years. God sends a deliverer, Moses, to lead his people to the promised land. He parts the ocean to save them. He's the one who takes out their enemies, the Egyptians, and saves the day. And Hosea forgets all of this. The people of Israel forget all of this. They've forgotten the grace of God. This is the character of spiritual collapse. How about us, church? Have we forgotten the grace of God? Because I think we tend to excuse ingratitude. Our hearts quickly run to complaining. We say things like, I have another Zoom meeting to go to. Now, do you realize that if this pandemic happened even 15 years ago, we would have been stuck with a flip phone and no text messaging even? Instead, we have some video technology now, which, while it may be annoying to some, is actually partly the grace of God for us to be able to connect face-to-face. Our hearts want to run to complaining, but let's not miss the grace that we've been given. Gratitude follows grace. Never forget that. German theologian Karl Barth magnificently wrote these words. He said, grace evokes gratitude like the voice of an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. Do you have a grateful heart? Because it may speak volumes about your spiritual life. Now, the second trait of 
uh, the second trait of spiritual collapse character is idolatry. It's idolatry. Now, I know we mention about idolatry up here a lot, but that's because idolatry is all over the Bible. In fact, people have said it is the chief sin of the Bible. You can't ignore idolatry. And it is clear from the story of Israel that idolatry plays a major role in their spiritual collapse. Moreover, I would say that the nation of Israel had become inoculated to idolatry. They didn't even notice it anymore, which is pretty convicting for us. Look at what happened to Israel, verse 7 and 8. It says, he brought him out of, uh, under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and the, the Israelites feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel that the kings of Israel had practiced. Now, what does it say the people of Israel did? They feared other gods. And I want you to see right here, this is an abrupt juxtaposition because in the first half of, of verse 7, we're reminded how God saved Israel, right? And then at the end of the verse, we're immediately told that they feared other gods. Now, if you're just reading this, that makes absolutely no sense, right? Because if God saved them, why would they not worship him? Why would they worship other gods? And I think the point is clear. That's why it's in there. We forget the true God in favor of false gods even right after he saved us because false gods make us feel good, right? They make promises they can't keep. What false gods do you fear? I mean, this again is that story of Invictus, that we want to be the captain of our fate, so we, we pursue the idols of money and fame and romance and, and we fear when we don't have it. Verse 8 tells us that the Israel, Israel was influenced by other nations, other world views. They walked in their customs. And again, church, we have to ask, <laughs> are we being influenced by the culture we live in? Because if we are, look at verse 9. It says this, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in their towns from the watchtower to fortified city. Now, We've mentioned this before, but high places. High places is a local place of worship to a God other than Yahweh. And this is the work you have to do to find out what the idols are in your life. Because not only did they fear false gods, they worshiped them. They made offerings to them. In fact, I heard a pastor say one time that if you want to know what we worship, you should look at what we elevate. What are the signs you see on skyscrapers and cities? What logos are most prominent? Which ones are high and lifted up? Those are the things that we likely worship. And this, and this is just public worship, right? Much more ominous is the idea that Israel did these things secretly against God. And that's true for us. Because the sins we commit in secret will very quickly come to the light as we worship them more and more and more. Verse 11 gives us one final warning. It says, And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them, and they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. Not only did Israel fear other gods and worship them in secret, we are told that they sought to imitate the culture around them, and that provoked the Lord to anger. Again, a warning for us all that God, God wants to set us apart for his glory, 
Idolatry is deep in the character of spiritual collapse because we are all made, whether you're here, whether you're watching at home, we're all made to worship something. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. In fact, one specific example that we can think about in our modern times is almost a worship of politics. It seems to me that people have turned politics into some kind of religion where we think that a certain politician or political party will save us and bring us peace. And that's true no matter how you vote. Our worship should not be directed to an earthly person but to a heavenly Father who is worthy of worship and the Prince of Peace is the only one who will bring peace. The third character trait is unbelief. Ingratitude, idolatry, unbelief. The character of spiritual collapse in the order here, ingratitude is first because it breeds bitterness against God. Idolatry is next because we need something to worship. But then finally, that all leads to unbelief because we do get to a place where we think we don't need God. Even though the prophets had warned Israel about false worship, verse 14 tells us they would not listen. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, it says, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Wow. Now, this is a convicting and a haunting verse for me, because back as far as the time of Moses, God warned his people about the dangers of false worship, and no sooner had God delivered his people from Egypt, but they were worshiping a golden calf right after he had parted the sea and brought them out. And what are they teaching their kids? They're teaching their kids to do the same thing, to break the covenant God made with them. You shall have no other gods before me. It's like it's right in the Ten Commandments. Look at that word stubborn. Sums it up. They were stubborn. They forgot God's grace. They pursued other gods. And then we see the fruit of it in verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. See, it says they despised God and his covenant. Unbelief. That's where it goes. We're told in verse 18 that this unbelief will lead to God's judgment. So church, before we leave this section, ask Is the character of spiritual collapse rooted in your heart? Do you have ingratitude? Are you in love with idols? Or have you made it all the way to unbelief? And maybe if you're listening today and you're in that place of unbelief, what brought you there? Right? Maybe it was a prayer that wasn't answered, or a tragedy that struck your life. I gotta tell you, the loss, the loss of a loved one can make you question God's goodness and lead to unbelief. These were the reasons for Israel's fall, and they will lead us to destruction if we do not heed the voice of God. Now, at this point in the message, you're probably saying, what a downer, my goodness. What are we supposed to do with the collapse of Israel? Right? What do we do with this story? Is there any hope? How can I avoid the problems that Israel faced? Well, let's look briefly at one final point before we close, and that's the point I'm calling the road to revival. The road to revival. But the road to revival is actually paved by looking backward at Israel's history one more time. 
Verses 20 to 23, the last part of our section today, are, are, again, we're reminded of Jeroboam's sin and the devastating consequences it produced. Look at verse 20. It says, And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the land hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. Now, we've already seen Israel chose to learn the hard way. Right? They rejected Yahweh through their ingratitude, idolatry, and unbelief, and eventually God let them have their way. And this is strong language here in verse 20, right? He rejected them. He afflicted them by giving them into the hands of these plunderers. He cast them out of his sight. Verse 21 reminds us of the history that led to this point. It says, when he, God, had torn Israel from the house of David, a reference to the divided kingdom, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the ways that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. See, our message today began with the last king of Israel. And it ends again by bringing it back to the first king of of Israel, because Jeroboam set the stage for the wickedness of the northern kingdom. And while God was gracious, wanting them to come back, he was patient with Israel, eventually judgment came. The road to revival leads us to look at history and learn its lessons. And the story of Jeroboam actually gives us a clue to revival and a picture of hope for the future. What do I mean? Well, what was Jeroboam's chief sin? It was false worship. It was idolatry. The belief that he was, as we read at the beginning, the master of his fate. And because of this, Israel was exiled and lost their land. But the second half of chapter 17 of 2 Kings is really interesting. Really interesting. Because the second half of chapter 17 tells the story of Assyria the nation that conquered Israel, resettling the land of Samaria and creating the group of people who would become known as the Samaritans. Now, you might remember that the Samaritans are mentioned a number of times in the Gospels, most famously in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke's Gospel. And in New Testament times, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. They hated each other, primarily over the issue of worship. So it's really interesting that you come to John's gospel, and he tells a curious story about Jesus entering the land of Samaria one day, right, which was not a common action at all. And he happened upon a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 at a well. And we're told that when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman, he looked at her and said, give me a drink. And the woman is stunned. And she says, how can, how can, how can this Jew ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And they enter into this conversation. And the woman, despite her false worship and her mixed beliefs, still knows the prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. The woman, of a people who had forgotten the God of the Bible, begins talking to Jesus about living water. Look at what Jesus says to her. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in that statement, Jesus shows her the road to revival. 
even though she doesn't get it at first. Jesus says, if you want to be revived, you need to drink the living water that only I can bring. In other words, you need to get connected to the true Savior. And so then they have a conversation about worship, the problem that destroyed Israel in the first place. Pretty ironic, right? Jesus challenges her idea of worship. He says this. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus says, your your conception of worship is wrong. If you want to experience revival, you need to see that worship is not confined to a place. It's focused on a person. And just like her ancestor, Jeroboam, the, worship, the woman was worshiping the false gods, and, and they were leading her down the wrong path. And what she needed was to find the true God and worship him alone. And so she looks at him and she says, listen, I know, I know Messiah is coming, and he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus looks at her, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And she leaves, changed transformed, revived. And friends, that story, which happens hundreds of years after the fall of Israel, shows us the road to revival for the people of Samaria and for us. The road to revival leads to two places that Israel missed. First, revival happens when we find the true Savior. Too many of us are looking to false gods to save us. And secondly, revival happens when we engage in true worship, which is something Israel never did properly. God is jealous for worship. He is jealous for our relationship with his people. So church, here's what happens when we see 2 Kings 17 in light of John 4. We see the unrelenting faithfulness of our great God That even though Israel's story ended in exile, brought about by their spiritual collapse due to ingratitude, idolatry, and unbelief, we have a a God who sent his son, our Savior, on a rescue mission right to the place where unbelief happened. When no one else would go to Samaria, who went? Jesus stepped into that land and he brought living water. He brought the message of salvation that is only found in him. That is the unrelenting faithfulness of our great God. Yes, judgment came upon Israel, but he sent his son to bear judgment for us. Grace, mercy. (laughs) And friends, I don't know how many, where everybody is at that's listening today, or even if you're listening to this later on, but some of us may resonate with the nation of Israel. And you might be sitting there saying, I'm on the road to spiritual collapse. And to you, I say, come to the well and drink anew the mercy of our great Savior. Repent of your ingratitude, your idolatry, your unbelief. Run to the true Savior who will lead you to true worship. Stop trying to be the captain of your fate. Give your life to the true captain of your soul because only then Will you be satisfied? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage. There's one more song we're going to sing. And as they do, I'd like to close with a poem by a woman named Dorothy Day. Because in the early part of the 20th century, Day decided to write a response poem to Henley's Invictus. And her poem is called Invictus Redeemed. 
And it points to our true captain. This is what she writes, and I invite you just to let these words wash over you. She writes, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince or cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. And then she finishes. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we just, we humbly bow before you, and we ask that you would be the captain of our soul, the master of our fate, Lord Jesus. I pray for my friends who are listening today. I pray that you would nudge our hearts towards repentance, towards running back to you, towards submitting our life to you, Lord God. We do thank you that you are sovereign in the chaos and you are the one who is worthy of our allegiance. May we give it to you and may you receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen.